Welcome back to another episode of Hustle Like You Broke. We have another exciting one in store for today. And instead of my usual 10-minute rant diatribe on whatever BS in the moment that I like to espouse, today instead, I want to wish a very happy birthday to one of our own, Mr. Chris Lee. Happy birthday to you. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Chris. Amen. I had no idea. Thank you. Chris, I got you something. I'm just not sure how to get it to you. (laughs) I appreciate that. You can mail that, Jim. I've been, I've been, I've been baking a whole lot of bread these days. So (laughs) you can FedEx that bread. I'll take some bread. I love bread. Yeah, it'll be done. Trust me. Appreciate that. So, Chris, I hope you have another breakfast cocktail with oh, us you, this morning. You know it. It's absolutely in the glass there. It's very full, too, today. There it is. And, and I hope you have several. You certainly deserve it. And I do want to say, and this actually is a good way, I believe, to open our episode. I am not going to sing happy birthday. Nobody would want me to sing happy birthday. But if we can all think the song happy birthday in our head. Just for one second. Oh, that's beautiful. That's that's beautiful. See now, and if you had sung that song twice, a man with a self-proclaimed very good brain would say that you had washed your hands, Mr. Kyle Hamilton. Oh, keep them clean, baby. Keep them clean. For the appropriate amount of time, 20 seconds to get your hands clean, as they say. Now, I've never heard that you needed to wash your hands for 20 seconds until this recent pandemic. And we're not going to make that the focus of today's episode. But we do have with us today a safety specialist, Mr. Jim Digby, who might know a little something about this. So I'm going to ask him before long what I believe is an extremely, perhaps the most important question of the day. First of all, Jim, welcome to the program. I am honored to be here, Matthew. Thank you for having me. And uh, Chris and Christine and Kyle, so great to see you guys or kind of hear you guys, I guess. Well, we appreciate you being with us. And and I have to say, again, I hate to blow our load and, and ask the most important question first. But given your level of experience on matters of best practices, would you agree with that man who will remain nameless, the self-proclaimed man with a very good brain, that singing happy birthday twice is the appropriate way to wash your hands? I have not timed the duration of my singing of happy birthday. So that first part would be difficult to, uh, to test. And I wonder if that very same guy, if he were washing his hands twice in, let's say, the Double Down Saloon in Las Vegas, would still feel like he got out of there clean. <laughs> <laughs> Doubtful. 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 <laughs> I, I think that's my go-to reference for, for cleanliness and hygiene, the Double Down Saloon. Yikes. Not that I've ever been there, of course. Oh. Nor had any ass juice. Okay, then. You haven't been there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and I don't know that I'm a 
safety expert. I think that might be a stretch. I think I'm a, a person who wants to see us all be the best that we possibly can. And where I find that I don't understand something and have a lack of guidance, um, I look for it. And then if I if it's good and it's reasonable, then I try to give it back to the community. Uh, well, I, I appreciate that. But I have to ask again, along these same lines, do you have another suggestion for a song that perhaps we should sing instead? <laughs> uh, no, I don't. It, are yeah. we are we going somewhere that I'm unfamiliar with, perhaps, or I'm expected to know with respect I, to this song? I mean, again, I'm just looking at the foremost expert on safety, at least in my experience in the short time we've been doing this podcast, and making a little joke here. That is, I funny. tell my I tell my children to do the ABCs twice. To wash their hands. And, okay. and perhaps, you know, that could ap- actually be happy birthday as well. I think the backbeat to both of those things might be the same. Um, I guess. <laughs> well, there it is. <laughs> so taking a little step back from there then. And again, in the spirit of wishing happy birthday to Mr. Chris Lee. Uh, Can I think ABCs, Chris? What was that? Can I sing the ABCs to Chris and we can time it together? <laughs> we need to do that in, in harmony. Please. Yes, please. <laughs> That's good. Anyhow, so backing up just a sec, Jim, I introduced you and invited you to speak before we'd actually told our listeners who you are, beyond the fact that they now know that you are the foremost expert in this world on safety. And <laughs> I'm really setting you up here. Uh, I got to look around the room to make sure I'm on the right podcast because I'm pretty sure that's not me. (laughs) Fair enough. Well, so backing it up, Jim, you've been in the concert industry for almost 40 years, as I understand it. That would be the sad truth. I I mean, I think that's an incredible truth. And, And we've talked many times about how so many of the people that have been in this business and really set the standards and and really advanced the industry from its early roots are still around. And, and it certainly goes back, you know, a good, good bit, uh, not a good bit, a, a short number of years before you, but, but you've certainly been at it for a very long time. We certainly appreciate having you with us. And for a lot of our listeners aren't seasoned industry professionals. They aren't people that are otherwise taking part in, you know, some of the, programs and webinars, excuse me, that your showmaker symposium, um, you know, speaks to in terms of the wrong side of the snake and I'm with the crew, which speak to, I would believe, and I could be mistaken, and you'll correct me, I'm sure, um, speak to people that are in the business or working their way into the business. But some of our audience is not in the business yet, looks to be in the business for future is studying, you know, music industry, music business, um, aspires to be on the road. Uh, and, and I think there's a common misperception that a lot of times the crews are people who love that band, who, who tour with that band because that's what they've always wanted to do. And, and somehow the crew gets lumped into a category of this is the type of acts that they work with. And, and I mention that because your resume is is more varied than than frankly I think any I've ever seen. We're talking everyone from 
Lincoln Park to Enrique Iglesias, to the Backstreet Boys to Marilyn Manson, to the Bolshoi Ballet, to Genesis, and so many other acts in between. And, and that is as varied a, a resume, as I say, as I have ever seen. So tell us a little bit about your beginnings as a production manager. And I, and I do want to say, and we talked about this a little bit before, you know, by means of prefacing that as a safety guru that you are, genius, what have you, uh, <laughs> I'm really building you up here, I know. Um, you know, we can talk forever, all day long about what's happening in the industry right now, but that's not really what I want to hear about, to be perfectly honest. I want to hear about you, your history, your story, what led you to form the Event Safety Alliance, to form the Showmaker Symposium, and to talk about the industry as it was, and we hope it will again become. Wow, there's a lot to unpack there. And we have to get back to best practices too. Let's not forget that. <clears throat> um, uh, I was that geeky, nerdy AV kid, geez, at fifth grade a long time ago, 12 years old, 10 year, 11 years old, and was not a very good academic student and got through, you know, thankfully then the arts programs were really well funded in, in, uh, in schools and got through my uh, principal educa education uh, as an AV nerd and, and sucked at class and came out, tried college on because my dad wanted me to. College and I didn't fit. Then I went to electronics trade school. That did fit. Got through that. Uh, came out of electronics trade school and uh, went immediately to work for a nightclub dinner theater that was under construction in 1983. And, um, you know, the quick version of that story is when the grand opening press night uh, was underway, I was a technician in the DJ booth uh, doing automation control. Now, back in those days, that was really rudimentary. It was pushing a button and watching things move and, and letting go of the button. There weren't um, a great many safety mechanisms in any of it at that point in time. And uh, on the big reveal inside this nightclub with that had a spaceship that flew out from the back and a robot that danced with the girls and, and you name all the silliness that you would find in Studio 54 in the 80s. And we had it, too. Uh, uh, a lighting fixture left the ceiling and went through the skull of a girl about eight feet from where I was standing and killed her dead. And yours truly was pushing the button controlling that lighting fixture. Now, I was. 19 at the time. Um, and that left me, that moment in time left me with a great deal of scar tissue, let alone the loss of that woman's life and what that meant to her family. Uh, I stayed working at the club for some time after that, um, went away from the club, a changed human, you know, worried about safety, thinking about safety, never wanting to see that sort of thing happen again. Uh, and journeyed off to Disney and worked at Disney for a few years, which was a great experience. I was a laser and pyro technician at Disney for a couple of years. I went to film school while I was down in Florida. And then uh, my roommate got asked to do a tour, which was the celebration of the 200th anniversary of the Bill of Rights. And we carried around to all 50 states one of the original parchment copies of originally signed parchment copies of the Bill of Rights. And it was an, an arena scaled 
tour with 11 tractor trailers and a bunch of Marine embassy guards uh, looking after the document. It was a really tumultuous time across the States where there was, uh, Philip Morris was the sponsor and that brought about quite a bit of protest um, because of uh, some political action committees around the LGBT community and the uh, the North Carolina governor, whose name escapes me, or, or senator uh, that um, passed. Anyhow, we had quite a bit of uh, protest around the the tour itself. I was doing automation control on that, kind of like technical work, and came out of there. The guy who ended up production managing that was the production manager for Genesis and Phil Collins, uh, and got an invitation without a job, without a job description to go on tour, my first tour as a stadium tour with Genesis. Uh, and that was, I was so over my head, I'm lucky to have survived that. And and the, the experience out there was brutal, both in work and in uh, the community tribe that worked around that band uh, were, you know, never say die guys who pushed and pushed and pushed and see if they could break people all day long. Uh, survived that. And I uh, had a few more years around that camp doing automation type work uh, and then got a chance to go out and work for Bugsy, John Hugdahl on Bon Jovi uh, in an advanced stage manager role. And that began the journey of kind of leadership um, in, the, in the business. Well, it's an incredible origin story. I'm sorry for the tragedy, but... Uh seems that it's always coming out of tragedy that that things change and people react and respond and you know take matters hopefully into their hands to make things better although that is one of my questions that I want to ask you looking ahead now to the event safety alliance you know I guess part of the question is why is it that we're always being reactionary what 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 can we be doing to be more proactive in well, terms of what's going on. Yeah. Uh, it, it's an interesting question. I guess I should probably connect the dots between <clears throat> 1983 and the ESA and then talk about the only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history, right? So when the stage collapsed in Indiana in 2011, um, I was out with Lincoln Park, you know, not anywhere near, proximate to what was going on in Indiana, but I had that that moment and hearing that story and knowing that those are colleagues and friends of all of ours in the, in the industry that were working that show and that it was a production manager just like me that was sitting backstage making decisions, it kind of tore open the scar tissue of what occurred in 83. And I had, uh, had a really uh, guttural reaction to it that, you know, God, we can't be doing this. We can't be producing shows and having people die under our watch. And kind of simultaneously, my son was, uh, my firstborn was about two years old at that time. And he came under, you know, w when he was born, he was born a couple months early and it was a life or death thing for a couple of months while, um, while he was in the intensive care unit and, and trying to be strong enough to leave that. Uh, and so two years later, when Indiana happened, I was working at home alone, you know, with him under my watch. And it went quiet in the room outside my office. And I thought, uh-oh, that's not good. It shouldn't be quiet. 
So I went to look for my son and I couldn't find him anywhere. <laughs> and when I did finally find him, I found him climbing the shelves in the pantry, <laughs> hanging there precariously. And I said, what are you doing, son? <laughs> uh, I'm okay, dad. And, and what, you know, of course, my first instinct was to take a picture of it. Uh, and then um, he, he, you know, I, I know this doesn't make much sense, but I'll connect it. He then said, hey, dad, can you get me down? Uh, he had put himself in this place where he thought he was perfectly safe because he knew he had his dad around. You know, he knew he had his family around to protect him. And he had no reason to suspect he was getting himself in trouble by climbing those shelves, you know, putting himself in harm's way by climbing those shelves. Uh, and that night when I laid in bed, it was like that moment kept replaying in my head that those kids in Indiana, those people in Indiana that died coming to a music show had a complete expectation of the people who put that show on of safety. They don't even think twice. An audience member doesn't think twice about coming into an event and thinking that they're in an unsafe environment. So when seven people die and 55 people you know, are, are, are permanently wounded as a result of this moment in time, we've let them down. They had an expectation of safety. And all of this emotion just flooded in that, you know, God, I, I had something to do with that with respect to this expectation of safety. And had it been me, would I have made a difference? Would I have known to make a different decision? At that time, our industry was not in a place where it was considering all of the stakeholders in its decision-making process to uh, what to do in the face of an impending storm or uh, any other threat. Uh, so I, you know, my, my response was to go on this journey of discovery. Where can I learn? Where can I learn? There's no teaching, no training, no barrier to entry for production people in the live events industry. And the closest thing I could find was a venue training academy. Uh, so I went through that and I sat in the room with many venue many operators who are all people who I, I had known from coming in and out of their venues and thought, well, where are all the production people in here? And there weren't any. Uh, and I thought, well, this is a miss. Why am I the only production person who's ever come to do this? Why isn't there training for me? Uh, and then a couple of weeks later, there was a weather academy related to venue owners. And I went to that and I'm like, why am I the only, oh, why, if I don't know this, my tribe doesn't know this. And those were the building blocks of, okay, we've got to do something. This education is requisite in us. We need to know how to make a weather response plan. You know, we need to have a weather decision matrix. We need, you know, all of these dots were just lining up that something needed to be done. And the good news is, you know, I ask when I'm when I'm trying to teach the moment of Indiana, you know, what what led to the death of all those people in Indiana? And, and most everyone says the wind or an unfit stage. Now, while those are actual events in the chain of causation, the reality is that's not what led to the deaths. What led to the deaths of people in Indiana was the lack of an actionable plan. And that's inexcusable. And the good news about that is it's something we can fix because we can't fix the weather. And there will always be weather conditions that are stronger than the stage we put up. So if we can't fix the weather and we can't always make sure that the structure is sound enough, what can we do to make sure that nobody dies? We can make a plan. And we can commit to that plan and we can get all the stakeholders around us who have anything to do with inviting an audience or an artist or a crew into a venue to make sure that they too are on that plan and that we've all agreed that that plan is a good plan. And then that way, when the, the black clouds are coming towards the venue, we all go, right, uh, 
Stakeholder one, you good with this? Stakeholder two, you good? Stakeholder three, you good? Yep, we're all good. Okay, great. Evacuation now. And we can do those things. We've put the tools in place. We've helped to create the weather tools that allow a venue operator and a production manager or a tour manager to know that impending weather is on the way and it's triggered our threat matrix. And because it's triggered our threat threat matrix, there's no ambiguity in the way we're going to decide right now. It's right here in the plan. We're canceling. Or we're postponing, even better yet, because now we don't lose the revenue and the audience doesn't lose their moment. So that was 2012 when we began to put the framework together for that. And that original group was a large group of, of, of industry minds. And, and without them, we would be nowhere. The problem still exists, however, that it isn't a regulation. It isn't a best practice. It isn't codified. It's an it's a collection of guidance that still to this day you can choose or not to choose. You choose not to use. And there are still many in our industry who say the deadliest words there are, and that is, I've been doing it this way for 40 years. I don't need no stinking wind device. I don't need the weather plan. That's ridiculous. That's a recipe for death. And I don't want to be a part of that. I don't think any many do, right? So the ESA, sorry, go ahead. I was just curious, Jim, why do you think there's such resistance to something as obvious? Like I have a water safety background and one of the things that's always taken me back in our industry is how we aren't always safety first. Matter of fact, one of the most impressive safety teams I've ever worked with was the X Games team um, with ESPN. They like blew me away on how rigorous they were with their safety versus how, you know, we may in the past have not been. And I just wonder why do you think there's just an innate reason to, you know, just challenge it instead of appreciating how the quality of life is important and these things do need to happen the right way. And Jim, Jim, actually, before you answer that, I'm glad that Dallas just said what she just said and everything you've been saying up till now, I mean, we're really starting to answer a lot of my questions before I ask them. And I think you've been listening to our podcast and know I've been railing about these concept of best practices and my belief that unfortunately they are more likely just nice ideas and great thoughts than actual best practices. So, so you, you're, you're clear on all of that and I, I appreciate it. But what to, to what Alice just said, I mean, I've not, I've been hearing that there are large companies with this industry that, actively seek to avoid the ESA and its guidance and the ad- adaptation of best practices as an actual thing, best practices. So, I mean, why is that? What, 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 it, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, let's, let's address best practices first, um, because the, the legal team around us, around the ESA, um, Steve Edelman would tell you that there's no such thing as a best practice because best practice isn't absolute. It must be done this way and only this way. In our business, we strive to make it different every day so that the ticket buyer will buy the ticket. And in, in our venue variety is significantly vast. You know, it could be somebody's backyard and it could be the O2 in London. And therefore what, what reasonable practices exist in my backyard are going to be different 
from the O2 and to define out the absolutes of best across a multitude of venues and a multitude of variety of shows, you do the math and we'll, it, it, it's hard to ex- imagine that we will get to best practices. We can, however, get to reasonable practices which is that you must be measured against you know, what you and the collection of folks in your industry do in the same or similar circumstances. And you know, that's why I, I have some uh, reaction to best practice, which is different from reasonable practice, which our guidance is. And that's where that comes from. Um, why we're why we may or may not be getting paid attention to by um, other large companies who produce shows for a living in our business may have something to do with the measurement of metrics rather than human value. And I can't say that for sure, but, you know, there was reluctance to put seatbelts in cars from the car manufacturers a long time ago because it would be an added cost and there was no, there was no cost value add to them. Um, and I think that many misinterpret safety as a cost factor when, in fact, it's just a practice factor in most cases. Uh, and I can't, I can't say with certainty why we're being avoided like the plague by some major entities. Uh, I can only say that they have an insular approach, that some of them have an insular approach to their own safety mechanisms which I think is intended to protect their policy and them as stakeholders, but it is not intended to address an industry need at large. And what the ESA has chosen to do is not worry itself about who's come on to the, who's drinking the Kool-Aid and who's not drinking the Kool-Aid. We're going to continue to find subject matter experts. We're going to continue to help develop guidance around the thing that needs to be addressed today. And we're going to release that guidance for free and, you know, to everyone who will listen. And the thing that I think many miss is if you've got to go stand in front of a judge now where previous to the ESA, there wasn't a a book of reasonable practices, chances are you're going to be judged against the book of reasonable practice that the new measure of reasonable is the event safety guide not what you've just done for the last 20 years, um, which is what it was previous to the Event Safety Guide. So I hope in some way that addresses your frustration with why it hasn't been you know, adapted, adopted widely. It is undergoing, going through the American National Standards process, ANSI right now, chapter by chapter, to make it become a standard. Um, I can't speak to excuse me, I can't speak directly to why um, there are some who would ignore the guidance other than it means I've got to do a lot more work and I've got to make myself a lot smarter. And that's the hard thing to do. And by and large, humans like to do the easy thing. That's funny you just said that. I I totally agree. And I appreciate, again, you know, the effort because I do speak so much about the need to be establishing best practices, or at least better practices. Again, forget what's going on right now. Uh, you know, I, I have this, this idea that, you know, 100 years from now, you know, somebody is going to open a treasure trove of podcasts and webinars and 
they're going to think that this pandemic was the only thing that happened in the entire first half of the concert industry, minus a couple months before and hopefully sometime after, because there's been just so much talk about what's happening right now, and there's still just so much unknown. But where you've come from and what you've established, and then hopefully coming out of this situation in a better place, I mean, to me, that's all we can we can work towards is is not exactly what it will look like right away, but how we come out of this in a better place. So with that in mind, I, I'm curious, one theme I read a lot about in relation to your work and, and otherwise is this concept of duty of care. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And I also want to, I also want to talk about you know, what are the building blocks to get to a place where the guide is of use? And maybe that's a different conversation, but, but the duty of care is something that all show adults in charge, event adults in charge are responsible to, well, in fact, all of us are responsible to duty of care. We're responsible to ourselves in our own duty of care. It's why you put a seatbelt on. But what I didn't know pre-Indiana was that I, as a professional production manager, had a legal duty of care for the workforce and the things that I bring into the building. Now, that may have been very, very naive, but I had no clue that if I had had to go in front of a judge and face um, actions that were brought on under my watch, that I would have failed the, in the in my duty of care, my job to keep my legal responsibility to keep a duty of care. So the technical definition eh, it's going to escape me without without googling, but um, essentially it means that I'm responsible for as the adult in charge. I'm responsible for the things and 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 humans, the resources that I bring into a site. Uh, uh, in in this context, that I bring into a site and to see to it that nobody gets hurt under my watch. And arguably, when we do shows, we have multiple care holders, multiple stakeholders. The venue manager has a duty of care to the venue and the venue staff. And potentially, I think in one definition, the venue and the promoter have a duty of care to the ticket buyer and those who come into the, come into the venue. So in the early days, we defined the lines of, of demarcation around duty of care as everything, you know, kind of... Uh, metaphorically from the barricade back was under my duty of care barricade forward was under the venue's duty of care. Now, of course that trickles out to front of house and follow spots and all the rest. Um, I, you know, looked back at myself and, and when I, when I first learned that from Steve Edelman at the venue manager's safety thing, I, I was like duty of care, what? And then Googled it like anybody else would. I'm like, Holy crap. I'm a new father. This is on me. You know, I thought that my job of production manager was making sure we got in, show was great, got out on time and moved on down to the next city and nobody got, I didn't realize that I had this duty of care. So it was really an awakening for me to find that. And then the other phrase that I learned at that very same time was reasonableness. I have, to, I have the duty to act reasonable and reasonable, as I said earlier, is the measure against my peers. So are my peers doing the same thing? If they are, then, then I'm being reasonable. Well, in the definition of, of what happened in Indiana, reasonable wasn't enough. So how do we get to a better bar for reasonable? Because that sucks. It sucks for those people who are dead. 
so uh, that's, again, an impetus for um, the ESA, and I've blanked on the second part of your question. I'm sorry. No, actually, you introduced the second part of my question where you referenced building blocks, which I think was kind of where I was going in the first place, that establishing a definition from duty of care is kind of a cornerstone in building that foundation and figuring out where we go and how that applies. Am I mistaken? Uh, you're not. Uh, and for me, the, the building blocks uh, are are fairly obvious. Um, and they, they haven't always been. I don't want to sound like I, I knew this all along, but they've become very clear in this journey of, you know, the Event Safety Alliance to where we are now. And that if I told, if I turn the microscope on myself and I look back at my career journey and how I got where I got, when I got, who I got there with, at no point in that journey have I had to go to school or any other institution and prove my capabilities. I haven't had to go learn on a Digico console. I haven't had to go anywhere and figure out how to build a stage. I haven't had to go anywhere to make sure I knew the difference between a safe scaffolding assembly and an unsafe scaffolding assembly. None of it. And I'm the guy with the duty of care. I should scare the shit out of our audiences and the crews that work for me and the crews that work for anybody else in this business. Every person in my line of work has gotten there without a requisite need for any of this information or understanding. Now, that's not to say they don't have it and you build it over time. That's what our industry teaches you with on-the-job training, but no one has it as a requisite. So if you're fortunate enough to be working for somebody who cares in growth and development and education and understanding has been paying attention on the journey in the, in the atmosphere that we work in, um, then perhaps your chances are better at not, having, not being caught up in an incident. Where, but if you work for somebody who's just you know, been buddies with a guy who was a DJ yesterday at a club and has somehow become the next um, you know, marshmallow, and, and now you're flying on private jets and you're going into places where there's 50,000 people, you carry the same level of duty of care as I do when I put 15 trucks into that building. And now you're underneath equipment that you had nothing to do with on the install, but your duty of care remains the same. And your ability to pass judgment on what's safe and what's unsafe has only come from your experience on the road, but you've only been doing it for a year. So what happens when shit hits the fan? And you're the guy in charge and you've only been doing it for a year. You're screwed because there's not been any prerequisite for you to know anything when the shit hits the fan. So looking ahead, you know, we've talked a lot about using this time as kind of a reset or an opportunity to, you know, to come out better and stronger. And, and one of the early suggestions that we talked way back in the podcast, one of the first few episodes, we talked about whether it made sense to establish some sort of board, some sort of oversight committee. I, I think Dallas suggested she floated the, the, the phrase union. Um, but some body, whatever. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I did not float the word union. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on now. Well, definitely not taking credit on that one. That's for sure. <laughs> More blame. Um, but, 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 you, but you understand where we're going in terms of some sort of oversight committee. And, and perhaps, again, perhaps that is 
what the ESA is and, and tell us more is, but how do we take that to the next level, I suppose, is what I'm saying now. How, how do we create those standards and the requirement that there be some adherence, the, the prerequisite that in order to be certified as a production manager of a large scale tour or even a small one, um, in order to be a tour manager, tour director, um, you know, a promoter, you know, producer of a festival. Festivals pop up left and right. And yeah, they just say, fuck it. We'll throw up a stage. We'll throw up a PA. We'll throw up a couple artists and we'll sell tickets and make money without knowing a fucking thing about standards in the industry. My insurance company has never asked me if I have any kind of certification to do the things that I do. Should there be some sort of organization that certifies this that on on not just because if you get sued, you know, you can say, well, I went to the ESA conference or what have you, um, but that actually says this is this is the industry standard and this is how we're gonna operate. And in order to sell X number of tickets, you need to have this knowledge and experience or what have you. Yeah, I mean that is the that is the bright sunny other side of the rainbow, if you ask me, and and I and I'm not sure that committees um, committees get us there as the starting point. I think perhaps the starting point is define the win, define the the desired outcome, uh, and, and you know in brief, I I see that as an educated workforce in their particular trade craft. I'm not saying. We, you know, we don't want to cut off anyone. One of the one of the beauties of our industry is that anybody can come in it. It's both a blessing and a curse. It's, you know, if you drop out of high school, but man, you can tune a guitar, or you drop out of high school, but man, you can you can play a wicked drum kit, or or you're technically you're technically crafted. You've got a home in the event space, in in, in live music space, and that's beauty. That's one of the beauties of it. It's it's why we get such great diversity across our industry. But the leaders, I think, perhaps we should be asking more of them. So we're not trying to, the ESA or me personally, whatever you might think, we're not trying to put roadblocks up from people getting into the business or from people, you know, we, we know that most in our business are authority uh, adverse, right? So we're not trying to do that. I think, I think in my mind, what we're trying to say is there should be a processed education. There should be a tenured you know, if we were to speak about unions, it would be, you know, from apprentice through to trades craftsman, to craftsman, right? I, I'm using the wrong words, but there should be apprenticeships and there should be, the, you know, these um, these benchmarks along the way, potentially, that you've now put in your time. Like you, one of the best parts of the union is the, is the film union, where you don't get to be the focus puller on the camera. Back in the days where they used film and, and it cost, I don't know, $100,000 a minute to shoot film. You don't get to be the focus puller until you did four years of time as the grip around the camera. And that the reasoning for that, the logic behind that was you can't waste a frame's worth of film. And if you're pulling the focus on that camera, you should better be in focus, right? So... Uh, uh, I, I believe in, in that sort of apprenticeship program. And I believe that there is strength in numbers for sure in, in the idea of a guild or some kind of organized um, voice 
part of the problem we have right now in, in finding relief for COVID, not to drift into another tangent, but we're, we've got so many different factions talking about our need. The people who are receiving our factions talking about our need are hearing mixed messages. And we're not speaking as the 12 million of us unemployed and representing nearly a trillion dollar industry. That's not coming as one voice. We're coming as this collection of Broadway folks over here, this collection of folks out of Nashville over there, and, and we're not getting traction as a result of it. So, uh, of course, I strayed and I've lost it. Uh, getting to the place where um, we can ask, what, what's, the, what's the desired outcome, which is a well-trained leadership around live events? And, and that leadership should have some grounding in safety as well as you know, emotional intelligence and how to, you know, how to take care of some HR skills and how to coach young team members to save their money and set up an environment that's not enabling and how, you know, and some mental health first aid training. There's a, a laundry list of things that make a good leader, but we don't, we don't have a, we don't have a consensus on what we want out of our industry and out of our industry leaders. I think we first have to gain that consensus and then start teaching it. I think that's fair. I guess one question I was, because uh, you're fortunate enough to have a global perspective, do you not see such a big difference? I mean, even our neighbors north of us seem to do, uh, are more focused on safety versus, you know, like just the same way Australasia and in Europe, UK. Um, there's always that concerted effort is in the forefront of, you know, when you come to a load-in, it's just immediate, you know, both between all the safety necessary items. Um and we still seem to struggle with that here. Why do you think that is? You know, it's funny because I, I, I can remember going into the O2 before uh, the UK had their their safety moment, right? There was, a, there was a tragedy in the UK, I think it was 99, that, um, that was the catalyst for their safety journey. And they, they, were, they are a decade ahead of us, for sure. In fact, were it not for our ability to borrow the Purple Guide, uh, from the UK, we wouldn't have been able to get to our event safety guide as fast as as fast as we did. Um, so uh, I was that guy going into the O2 before safety was a thing. You know, the American cowboy going, "I'm not putting on my hard hat, not a chance. I'm not doing that." You know, and I would get wound up, and and I was the leader. Sadly, I hate to admit it, of of not accepting their safety practices. And then Indiana happened and my entire perspective on all of it changed. So I think we, we in America, many in America have this um, uh, propensity to be bulletproof. And, you know, we think we know when we travel abroad better than anybody else, when in fact, there are lots of good ideas everywhere on the globe. Uh, and there's lots of bad ones too, don't get me wrong. But with respect to safety, I think we are on the tail end of that train. There's no question, Dallas, you're absolutely right. Uh, and we, because it's not part of what we do every day, we're slow to embrace it. And I think that that journey has been traveled with seatbelts as well. You know, it, it took a long time from the advent of a seatbelt to getting everyone to realize, shit, I better put that seatbelt on. Um, Valid point. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's very true. And then I'm wondering too, do you think that with our young guns coming up now, some of the younger production managers, do you see it being a primary focus in their daily load-ins? Do you think in their you know perception of what needs to get done? 
I hope so. And I think I do. I think Joe Scars is, is you know, really interested in it. Um, I think what, what inspires me most about the young guns is <clears throat> they're as enthusiastic as I was to work in the business, but they're, they're not enthusiastic for BS. It feels to me like they want a more formally organized pathway to success. Like it feels to me like if they go to a conference they want to get something out of it other than a good time at the bar. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, so I'm, I'm inspired by the youth and I think the youth have something that we didn't, or I didn't have. I, I didn't have an event safety guide to refer to. And wouldn't it be cool now to connect it? If, if in fact there were a pathway to connect the dots to getting to a safer society in live events down the road, that the, that the safety guide were a, a, along the journey of that and that there needed to be some kind of proof that you've read and understand the safety guide. We wouldn't be the first industry to have that in front of us, and perhaps it's a good thing. So, Jim, quick question um, regarding every, everything is talking about venue safety. What about the transportation side of the safety um platform um i know especially with regards to tour buses truck drivers and all that other stuff like i know in the uk it seems like we stop every 15 minutes to get <laughs> from um, when you're going to the next uh next location but in the u.s it's like we just power through it now how how, how are we gonna face that situation because i know it's all about the bottom line, meaning the money, but you know, safety is also regards to the drivers and the the crews on the buses. Well, uh, yeah, I think it's a good question, and, and and again, we lag behind. Yeah, we're we are now in a different day. Everybody's aware that we now have electronic logging devices in our uh, trucks and and buses, but that was you know they they existed for at least a decade or more in Europe and the UK. And, uh, you know, once I became a dad and started feeling like I wasn't as bulletproof and that I was a, a mere mortal, I started to care about how much sleep my bus driver was getting. And um, like you guys, I'm sure I've been on a bus that's been barreling down the highway. And I know that that bus driver hasn't had a whole lot of sleep and it didn't bother me as much as it does today. Uh, and in the Europe, in Europe, frankly, you know, I think it's every four hours they've got to stop for a fifteen, and then there's a, then there's another breaking point at nine hours. But um, I started to appreciate more the rules and co-pilot and and the way UK and Europe handled their drivers because it meant that the guy who had my life in his hands and the, and that of the team on the bus was probably in better shape to not have an accident than he would be if he was a thousand miles from New York to Miami and, you know, trying to do it all in one run so he could get the payoff. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I'm not comfortable with that anymore. And and thankfully the electron, you know, to the chagrin of many, um, but to the betterment of our, of our own safety on the highways, uh, we now have those electronic logging devices in our trucks and, and buses too. Now, we haven't caught up with the systems yet to make routing as viable as it used to be pre-ELD. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I, I have faith that the, the good companies out there will will find a solution for that. And we can have 
safe, rested drivers in every vehicle that's going down the highway on a show that I put together because I'm going to hire a, a competent vendor who follows those rules. But going back to the original part of the conversation, one of the challenges we have is there are all measures of competency in our vendors out there. So if you wanted to bend the rules, you probably could find a vendor who would bend the rules for you. Personally, I don't want to be responsible for that because I have the duty of care now, right? Always have. Right. There it is. So do you think that double drivers would be like the the new normal for moving forward? I, I think that's our future. If, if we're going to intend to keep up the kind of rigor in North America that we've had before, I don't, it's either going to be double drivers or it's going to be pre-positioned drivers. Um, but, you know, one thing is for sure, the way we used to do it and the way we used to incentivize it, by the way, by me offering an overdrive is showing complicitness in the court case if it went horribly wrong. And that right. chain of causation comes right back to the guy in charge who offered the double drive. And then that goes from me up the ladder to the people who allowed me to do that. Right. So, And remember, they're not going to come after my pockets. They're going to come after the pockets of the people with the biggest paychecks. Um, so I, I do think that we get to a day where either double drivers are the norm or pre-positioned drivers are the norm, or we have to change the way we route tours, which makes it ineffective for costs, for expenses. The earned value is less. Hey, Jim, uh, speaking about safety and well-being, I was just curious about your ideas on mental health, you know, amongst the crew members and, you know, bad habits and things that, you know, happen on the road, uh, especially seeing how we're coming out of this, you know, what measures do you think need to be in place to address, you know, things that people have been dealing with and during this quarantine when they come back to work? Good question. And thank you for it. Um, uh, as you know, I was right next to a mental health incident when Chester died by suicide. Um, and uh, it was, you know, as has been the case with the Event Safety Alliance, for instance, you know, when we when we formed in, in 2012, we were thinking about stage collapses and the chain of causation around that. And and then, you know, um, Christina Grimmie happened and then Las Vegas happened and then Orlando happened and then Manchester happened. And every time one of those incidents happened, we pivoted to embrace the additional knowledge that our tribe needed to to be aware of. Um, and same is true with mental health. And, you know, in Chester past, uh, mental health became a subject matter in the Event Safety Alliance. And much like the early journey after Indiana, the, one of the early responses for me when I could stand again after uh, losing a guy I'd worked beside for 16 years, who I loved dearly and cared about dearly, um, was to um, address some of my mental resilience by enrolling in the mental health first aid training. Uh, and one of the things that that mental health first aid training was taught me was that I, th as much as I thought I knew about mental health, I actually knew nothing. There's a pre-assessment test when you walk into the classroom. I, I think it's around 22 questions. Um, I got 20 out of 22 wrong, um, which meant that someone who I can, you know, myself, I consider myself fairly well read and fairly well in touch with the world. 
And, and I would have told you before that day that, yeah, I know how to address mental health. And the fact is I knew nothing. And it may not have changed the outcome for Chester, but it sure made it feel like it, I could have. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that stigmas around mental health is that you shouldn't address someone who's showing signs of mental duress, uh, frankly and directly. Are you thinking about suicide? Um, you know, I, I answered that question wrong. I, would, I said run away from that question. And the fact is you're supposed to be frank about it. Uh, in most cases, that ends up being the best course of action. Now, nothing is absolute. Uh, and then there was also a discussion around voices in your head. And, and Chester used to talk all the time around the voices in his head. And I never fully appreciated what that meant for Chester. I also never fully appreciated that all of us are manufactured differently. Not a single one of us humans comes out of the factory exactly the same. And because of that, we need leaders who are compassionate to the fact that everybody is different and everybody's triggers are different and everybody's needs are different. And if you're really going to be a leader, you need to be listening for those things. Now I say that like, that's who I am. I'm not, I haven't been that guy. I haven't had years, decades of behaving like that. I'm only now coming to these things, but I think that, that they're good. I think it's good to, to embrace that we owe as much a duty of care to a to a broken arm as we do to a to a a bad day mentally, and and we need to find the tools to try to bring people out of or either out of their anguish that they're having at that moment to put a bandaid on the mental issue or be able to move them in the right direction so that they can they can seek additional help or whatever those things are. Our leaders should know how to direct those energies. And so mental health is also something that I think we are woefully lacking in because we don't embrace the idea of an HR department, which has been relied upon in big industry to fall back when somebody's having difficulty, they send them to the HR department. We don't have that. Uh, and I don't think that that's anywhere in our sites anytime soon. So that leaves the responsibility for addressing those kinds of concerns to the leaders or, you know, a subset of the leaders within it, within a touring tribe. Um, I do think because we work in a business that is emotionally set up for us to fail. And what I mean by that is the, the roller coaster ride of working in live events is why we're there in the first place. You know, that we get a dopamine shot a self-induced dopamine shot. Every time the house lights go off and we get chills, boof, we're taking drugs and our body's giving them to us. And then we, and the show's over and there's a standing ovation, boof, we get another hit of dopamine. And now we're on this high and we load out and that's an adrenaline rush and that's feeding the dopamine thing. We're getting through all that and it's, and wow, I feel really good. I'm going to get on the bus and I'm going to eat a pizza or I'm going to snort a line, or I'm going to smoke a joint, or I'm going to, whatever I can do to extend that rush. And then you close the curtain behind your bunk, or you go into a hotel room, and it's quiet. And now you've got all that emotion, you've got all those drugs running through your system, and you're going to fail. Your chances are the mental roller coaster ride is going gonna, is gonna to hit you in some way or another. And we need to be better, I think, about building the coping mechanisms on the road 
And I think that starts with just recognizing, hey, guys, we're in this amazing business. And it's also an amazing roller coaster ride mentally. So here are the things we're going to do as a tour to ensure that we're able to address mental issues, uh, mental concerns as much as we are physical concerns. And uh, if we're traveling down the road at 80 miles an hour to the next city and we're all high, high and having fun, that's great. But we're also going to do this, this, and this to just check in and, and provide an outlet for anybody who needs it. Um, I think that's, you know, the work of the most, in, in, in almost every instance, that's the work of the professionals. But I also learned in the mental health first aid training that they, they, um, they, 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 one of the things that you watch while you're in that training is the story of that fellow who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge trying to kill himself and, and survived. And the, his story, he tells his story in the sequence of events from the day he woke up and decided he was going to do it to the time he jumped off the bridge and was in mid, mid-fall realizing, oh, shit, why did I do that? Um, he said, if anybody had just stopped along the way, you know, I, I went and he said, when I walked to the bus stop, I passed a dozen people. When I got on the bus, there were 30 other people on the bus. When I walked across the bridge, I passed enough. If any one person had just said, hey, man, are you okay? it would have changed the outcome. He wouldn't have jumped. So once we empower our leaders and each other with that kind of knowledge to know that we can, we can jump in and help uh, somebody who might not be having a great day, I think that's a pretty powerful place. And that's an aspirational place we should all be trying to get to. Mm-hmm. Can we think about doing something like having a code word, you know, in the industry creating, because I think, you know, one of the problems too is, if someone isn't challenged and they're on tour, there's no really inviting place for them to go. They might say something more to the front of house dining person um, than they would walk into a production office and perhaps look to the leadership for help. So is there a way we could maybe institute a safety word or something, or have, have we done that already and I'm not aware? I don't think that we have, Dallas, and it's, it's, a, it's a good idea. Um, again, it goes back to, and, and forgive me for constantly taking it here, but I think if we're going to do that as a as an interim step, we should at the same time be asking that our leaders become uh, more attuned to this kind of conversation. So um, perhaps because the uh, the guide the event safety guide reop- reopening guidance is talking about the um, uh, an infectious disease uh, person on tour, ha- having somebody on tour who looks after those things, you know. Is it the rigor? Is it the uh, backstage coordinator? Is it you know, the production coordinator, production assistant? One, it can't be somebody's assignment. It has to be somebody who's willing and wanting to do that role, I think, to be the touch point. Or is it just all of us saying, hey, let's be more aware and attuned to each other um, and let's have a weekly check-in or a daily check-in even. There's talk about having a mental health toolbox talk in the morning alongside of, uh, alongside of, you know, here's our task for the day. Hey, let me just check in and look everybody in the eyes and make sure they're doing okay. Is there anything we need to know? Is every, you know, um, and, and just touching, I think there's a number of different ways to skin the cat, I guess, Dallas, as I ferret this out. I'm sorry. I, I just have to say this cause I know Matt and a few other strong minded production managers or tour managers, if somebody were to come into the office saying some something like, you know, they're not their mind isn't right, Matt would be like, quit being a little bitch and get up and go do something, blah, 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 blah. 
and some of these other PMs that are like football coaches. So are we sure that um, they would have the compassion that Dallas is referring to? Because I personally think Matt would be like, quit being a little pussy, quit being a little bitch, and get up and go do X, Y, Z. Now, wait a second. I got (laughs) to jump into that one. Hold on. (laughs) <laughs> Thanks for the character assassination there, Kyle. I, I definitely <laughs> joke with people. It, 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 it is not unlike me to say something like, you know, what the fuck is wrong with you if I feel like that is the appropriate thing to say. But I, I have dealt with plenty of people coming into my office crying and had to, you know, have much more deep and compassionate conversations with them and, and fuck off because I think I'm fully capable of that. But, but I do think that Jim's making a lot of good points about the lack of training that I've had in that respect. I I would, I'd be the first person to acknowledge that I don't know what is the right protocol for how to respond to that. I'm pretty sure I would not say stop being a little bitch. Thank you very much. But but I, I but but Jim's right. I, I mean, I've had no HR training. I've had no, uh, you know, mental health training. Um, you know, I'm I'm an advocate for a doctor coming in every once in a while who's going to ask about that whether we should consider having doctors check in at venues on a daily or weekly basis on large scale tours. And and I, I mean, reality is smaller tours can't afford that, but at a certain level they can. Um, but we can all afford to be more human, though. For sure. For sure. I, I think, and I don't think we're going to get one solution. Uh, you know, it, it just speaks to the fact that we're not setting a bar. We're not setting a, an, a requisite expectation of the leaders of our industry. Um, and I think that that scares the daylights out of a lot of people because it means they might have to modify the way they do business. But real leaders want to learn all the time and want to improve all the time. Uh, And I don't know that, you know, the kind of things I'm hearing is it wouldn't take a doctor. It just takes somebody showing that they're listening for a minute, you know, somebody just checking in for a minute. And I think because, you know, again, back to the blessing and curse, because there is no prescribed way to run a tour, zero prescribed way to run a tour, just don't get anybody killed and get on to do the next show. Right? right, that that we have the opportunity to experiment with a lot of different ideas around this idea, and I think it also works differently for the culture of every tour. There, you know, and, and we also have to recognize the things that that are out there in front of us that are challenges as well. People will self medicate, and they'll do that in a number of ways, and and it, it it reveals itself as addiction in some ways, and it reveals itself in in uh, other coping mechanisms and others. And <clears throat> we're not going to change those things about our industry. They're not going away. So we have to learn how to get our footing around these issues in the current atmosphere, the current dynamic. And then like Event Safety Alliance, we got to slowly, a spoonful at a time, start to try to bring people along, You know, put it in the Kool-Aid or slowly turn, whatever metaphor you want, slowly turn the ship. It's a little bit at a time, and I think we can do it. Uh, If we stopped right now and tried to make a wholesale change across our industry, although COVID's given us a new opportunity, um, 
a wholesale change across our industry, it would fail. It would fail in a heartbeat. Um, and not that I'm saying another method is going to succeed, but I have greater hope that if we if we decide unanimously or close to with unanimity, no, that's the wrong word. Uh, if we decide with the majority that this is the direction we want to go in, then it's on us to figure out what is the desired outcome. Here's where we want to be, and here's how we're, and then put the plan together for how we're going to get there. Um, the ESA is certainly addressing, you know, the 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 direct safety um, uh, meaning to that, uh, and. I, it, I don't know that it falls into the ESA's control or concern to worry about the social um, dysfunction in our uh, in our the way we do business. I think that's on us. We've got to create a higher bar, and and do we do that because the because the leaders who are better trained are getting hired more frequently? Uh, do we do that because there's a guild system that makes people go through this kind of training or? You know, I don't know how we get there. I, I just think that we should. Yeah. Uh, do you think it's just um, a per person, like you said, a per tour basis, you know, and basically having that area where people feel comfortable to be able to talk and say, hey, I have a problem. Uh, I think the other side of that, too, is just what we're seeing right now is that I feel like there's a need for more of an openness and more. People, people to feel more comfortable being able to talk about situations, and I think just not only mental health but also like financial literacy. Uh, yeah, you know, we're Big seeing time. a lot of guys, you know, that you know, you come off a tour and you know, you should have something to show for it. And I think a lot of that is kind of a proponent for what happens, you know, with mental health and 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 substance abuse and drinking and you know, masking the pain because of finances. Um, yeah. do you see something like a financial literacy, just course, or just, you know, a pamphlet or a handout or something, you know, to direct guys in a way? I mean, I just feel like our industry has just been like, okay, you know, that's, that's you, you figure it out, you know, you do what you do. I'm not, you know, trying to get into your business, but I just feel like there just needs to be more of a, yeah. I don't know, an environment where people feel like they can say, Hey, I need some help or I'm just unsure. It's yeah. kind of just been like a don't ask, don't tell. And you kind of just figure it out on your own. I just feel like yeah. now with what everybody's going through, mental health, financial literacy, those things need to be, you know, kind of in the forefront now for our industry. Uh, you, it's as if you've just constructed the tenets of what showmaker symposium is all about. Mm. Um, you know, not that we want to lay claim to all of those things, but all of those things are, you are absolutely 100% correct. All of those things are missing right now. And the fact that, you know, a tour gets stopped cold because of X, Y, or Z reason, be that artist breaks leg or COVID virus pandemic takes over the world. People should not then the next day be sleeping in their car because they've gotten no finances. Right. Um, so we are lacking in uh, financial literacy. Absolutely correct. Uh, it's, you, you know, I'm torn between this idea of a unified body so that everybody has a pension to fall back on versus should we be educating those who get into the business from the moment they come into the business that these are the pitfalls you could hit if you don't, A, have some financial literacy. B have some mental literacy. B have uh, C have some um, some empathy in you. 
you know, I don't know that I want, I'm not 100% sure that I want someone else to control what happens to me and my family um, because I've signed up for um, a guild, right? For instance, uh, I think all of us, many of us got into this business because it provides a level of freedom that going to a nine to five corporate job does not. And if you put your destiny, your financial destiny into the hands of um, an organizing body, you're then looking more like a corporate entity than you are this independent entity that attracted me, for instance. So I'm not sure where I feel where, what I feel about that, but I do like the fact that I can make my own decisions. I don't like the fact that I had to learn that myself after I'd already wasted a decade's worth of money, right? So, with respect to the to your comment on on um, different tours, yes, every tour is its own organism. There's a collective heartbeat among in inside a tour once it leaves rehearsals, and as you go down the road that collective heartbeat becomes stronger and each one has its own signature kind of um, um, ethos to it. So it, I don't think there is one prescribed way to address mental health. I need to talk financial literacy. Well, I, I think each organism has to define itself and, but should we then say each organism has to have this output? I think that's reasonable. Somewhere on your team, there has to be somebody with mental health first aid training, period. You know, the insurers don't insure the tour or managers don't put that team to work unless somewhere on that tour, there's somebody with mental health first aid training. I think that's a reasonable thing to ask. Yeah, it's, it's a great start. Well, I know for me personally, with regards to um, helping people with financial literacy, I've spoken to many of young guys on the road, especially when I see them buying the bar for everybody and they're not really bringing that kind of money in. And when you try to tell them, you know, don't leave your money on the road, take your money home with you, you know, spend a little bit here and there. But a lot of these cats could care less what you say to them. They're like, yo, I got it. I'm making this. I'm making that. I have all the newest bags. I have all the newest shoes. I've drank all the drink at the bar, but yet, you know, like you said, one week out of the tour, they're broke. And unfortunately, when you talk to a lot of these kids, they can care less. They feel like they're Superman. I got it all together. And so for me personally, that's why I'm like, you know what? I'm good. I, why talk to them? Because it's a waste of my time and breath because they're going to do what they want to do anyway. So I think the financial literacy comes when you realize that like you said yourself, you left 10 years of money on the road and it's a learning experience. So I think that's one of the things they just have to embrace because most younger kids can care less what you have to say to them. Yeah. And, and you know what? I think about the here and now, if I had that 10 years of money I left on the road in the bank, I wouldn't be worried about what my next job was going to look like. Mm-hmm. Not yet. You know, I might be able to make it for a year of COVID without getting into panic mode, but I didn't it's too late. I spent that money and I spent it on dumb shit. Um, so, yeah, I think it's an important I, 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 the, the concept of, of having a place where we can all learn. And I personally don't care whether that's, you know, online training or conversations like this or a conference. I, I, and, and I'll shotgun apply, you know, here's a whole bunch of stuff. Boof. Now it's on you to ingest it. Um, 
I just think we as an industry should be asking more of ourselves on behalf of the young people coming into the business so they don't have to have the same mistakes and fall into the same holes that we've already fallen into. Are you saying we're supposed to make it easy on them? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry to take it all back through them. (laughs) No, you're absolutely right, because obviously with age and experience, you learn, correct? Well, one hopes. (laughs) I'm still learning every day, Dallas, every day. As we all are, I hope. Well, Jim, I feel like we could go on forever about this. And I mean, to be honest, I still have a good number of questions, but perhaps we'll have you back one day soon. We've certainly taken enough of your time for today and uh, certainly a lot to process and consider. So with that said, we do have a series of quick hit standard questions we always ask just for our listeners and our own knowledge. And and hopefully they are uh, lighthearted compared to so many of these other topics. Is this Um, when I hustle? I mean, it sounds like you've been hustling a lot, but if if this is not you hustling already, then then perhaps it is. Is is there something else as a hustler uh, <laughs> feel we should know? No, this is good enough. <laughs> okay then. Uh, so, uh, real quick, your first tour. Tell us about it. Um, uh, that was the Bill of Rights tour, uh, and that was a, it was all 50 states, uh, two cities in California and two cities in Texas. So we had 52 stops. We were in each town a week, each city, and I was young and dumb and, uh, and with a bunch of, of seasoned veteran roadies. Um, and it was, uh, I don't know how much we slept that entire tour. Copy that. Your favorite tour. I gotta say, you know, I, Darius Rucker, Hootie and the Blowfish, those guys were so much fun going on stage. Blues Traveler, same sort of thing. That The air around Hootie and Darius and those guys at that time during Cracked Review and Fairweather Johnson was just, you know, it was, it was the closest thing I could get to Jimmy Buffett, which was where I was trying to be at the time. Uh, and it was, you know, they knew the first song that they were going to do when they walked on stage. Set list, who needs a stinking set list? And they'd do the first song and then they'd stop and chat and drink a shot and then, and then do another song. It, it, it was uh, a, a really joyous time. And, and working with Mike Shinoda, I got to say, is, um, you know, that's a blessing. that he, uh, he is just a really decent human being and he's an incredible producer and uh, a lot of fun to be around. Very cool. Uh, do you have a best moment or experience you can tell us about? You know, anything I, well, on tour, beside the, the birth of my children, the, you know, the, the best moment or experience on tour. No, I, I, <laughs> they've all been great. I love what I do for a living. I love the people I get to do it with. And um, I, uh, I'm blessed to have had this journey. Fair enough. Easy way out, by the way. Total cop out, but that's okay. No, I don't know about it being a cop out. I mean, I could tell you some humoric anecdotal, humor, humorous anecdotal stories, but that's not what you asked me. You asked me the best moment. Uh, I tell you, the best moment is watching the uh, young people around me finally get their legs and tell me to shut the f up. 
And when and when they get to that place, Megumi, by the way, Christine is is a perfect example of that. I used to, uh, you know, I give her a responsibility to coordinate the runners, for example, and then the runners would come in the office and ask her a question, and I'd be sitting next to her, and I'd overhear the question and I'd answer it for her, even though she, they were asking her. And I never realized that, you know, looking back in the mirror on myself what I was doing. It was innocent. I just never realized how ignorant that was of me to do those things. And so she got to the point where she would, you know, runners would walk into the office. She would get up out of her chair, grab them by the shoulders and walk back out of the office and have the conversation out of my earshot because she didn't want me jumping in and doing her job, which she was absolutely right to do. And, and this went on for some time. And one day we were trapped in the office Somebody came in and looked at her nowhere near my desk and said, um, you know, asked her a question and I started to answer it and she chucked her hand up and put it in my face. And she said, I got this. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and I'm back to my chair and I'm like, holy shit, I love you. You got this. And, and, and it was at that moment that I realized, uh, you know, I wasn't being a leader. I was being a micro micromanager. Uh, and uh, that was that was a favorite moment of mine, and that repeated itself with a lighting designer for uh, Lincoln Park and Mike Shinoda, uh, Celine Royer, uh, when she said to me, "I said, I, you know, something. This isn't the this isn't the actual story, but it was something along the lines of the color of the lights or hitting a certain cue." And and she had been hired to design and operate the show, and I said something along the lines of, uh, "You know, it, it needs to be blue," and she said, and "She's French." Are you just telling me it needs to be blue because you want to prove that you're my boss or do you need it to be blue? <laughs> Wait a minute. I'm saying it because I'm trying to prove to you I'm your boss. And I didn't say it to her, but I said it to myself. And those moments where the, the team get their legs and they're back in my face and they're right are the best moments. Because I've that, that demonstrates for me that I've given them enough courage and confidence to tell the boss, you know, not, and I don't consider myself a boss, but to tell the boss he was wrong. That's a statement of respect. And those have been my best moments. Wow. Okay. <laughs> On that note, I'm not sure what else I could ask other than do you have any shout outs that you'd like to uh, extend to anyone? I want to shout out to our whole tribe. I, uh, I know there's no way to say it and there's no, you know, there's no way to prove it, but man, our industry, you know, first the, the vendors and, and the folks around our business who pivoted right away to try to solve the problem. Cause that's who we are. And they were making face masks and they were making shields and they were converting their businesses to try to help. And they didn't care whether it returned to revenue or not. That's pretty impressive. That's who we are. And that's the best thing about us. And then every crew person right now who's sitting at home out of work and, and, you know, it's the first time in the history of the business, we've all been exactly the same, unemployed with no income. And so for every crew person that's out there, who's, who's just trying to get through to tomorrow, keep it up, keep it up, keep it up. We're going to get there. It's going to be stupid for a while. It's going to be painful for a while, but it's worth it in the end to keep the fight going and if you can pivot right now and go do something else to feed your family, pivot. Don't worry. You got another chance later on. Well, on that note, 
Jim Digby. We are happy to have you. Event Safety Alliance Showmaker Symposium. To all our listeners, check him out. Look him up. Educate yourselves. We are here to keep hustling, but it sounds like Jim might be out hustling a lot of us, and uh, I'm certainly going to step my game up. I appreciate you, Jim, for being with us. Anything we can do for you, for for any of your people, you know, please uh, don't hesitate to let us know, to call us anytime. Please come back, speak to us again. Uh, it's been an education for me. I've learned a lot. I will uh, I will think a lot more when talking about my, my desire for improvements and best practices and what have you. And I've made a number of notes here today. I'm sure a lot of people have. So kudos to you. Thank you to our listeners. Don't forget, we are at HLUB Podcast on Instagram. We are hustlelikeyoubroke.com. Send us your questions, anything you'd like us to relate to Jim. We will do that. And uh, until the next time, thank you and good night.